Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Today I'm joined by Hamish Douglas, who doesn't really need any kind of introduction. He is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Magellan, probably Australia's best known fund manager. And he's going to share with us today what he's thinking about an uncertain future and where we can look for opportunities in global markets. Hamish, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Gemma, it's great to be with you. So being with people is an interesting, uh, an interesting situation in these days. You're uh, working remotely at the moment. How are you guys responding to COVID? Uh, yes, I am working remotely. Believe it or not, I haven't been into our office. I, I think since the fifth of March. Uh, so it's been a long, uh, it's been a long time. Um, it, it's gone very smoothly, you know, for for somebody who'd been going to the office for thirty years every day, and spending a lot of time travelling around the uh, around the world. It's been a welcome break, and and we've actually really got to test new technology um, that I think is going to lead to a dramatic improvement in work life balance and and productivity uh, uh, moving uh, moving forward. Not travelling has been a welcome relief for my family. I think I would have had three more trips. Actually, I was I was in the United States in in early March, just after our roadshow, and I would have had three more trips overseas between then and now. And of course, I haven't haven't been, so that's been good good family time. Uh, but one thing that we, we, we've learned here is we've had probably more interactions with global chief executives around the world who, in companies in which we invest, than we would have usually had. They would have usually been physical meetings. Uh, those face-to-face meetings normally would have had one or two people from Magellan, but now we're having meetings that are much more contemporaneous with what's going on, not fitting into people's travel schedule. And suddenly we're getting 10 or 15 people from Magellan uh, going to those meetings, participating, getting to listen in uh, on a Zoom call or a, or a Teams, Microsoft Teams video uh, conference. Uh, and those people, one, can ask questions, but two, can get the direct interaction. You could not take 10 or 15 people to a chief executive meeting in New York and say, can we come into your conference room? They'll think we're stark raving mad. Um, so I do think it's leading to benefits and I, I do think it's leading to benefits. You know, we all spend an hour plus a day traveling to our offices every day. Uh, and I do think we're gonna have a more flexible environment. I do think some form of uh, social and personal interaction in a physical sense is important. I don't think we can move to a world where we don't physically interact with people anymore, but I do think there is more flexibility that that that, that people can, can have that I think will increase, as I said, work-life balance, but increase productivity. And we would have never found this out without being forced into this uh, 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 situation. So I guess one of the upsides of what we've been through, uh, but of course, there's been plenty of challenges as well. I, uh, it's lovely that you're finding some advantages in this and uh, and finding ways to make it work. And I think we have all found opportunities to use new technology. I found that quite telling. We had a very significant uh, project within the business that was going to allow all of our call centres to work remotely. And that was going to take several years to make it work. Uh, I believe it took less than two weeks when we had to sort it out. So it's amazing how quickly you get on board with your technology when you don't have a choice. And, and, and without being forced, there would have been all the excuses in the world of why we can't do it now and everything else. And the same thing would have happened 
in our environment. We've been forced into this BCP and, and people have found ways to work and, and, and found ways to use the technology. A lot of people just would have never tried the technology. I think you're absolutely right. I think the other thing that always holds up major projects is risk. You know, there's all these concerns about additional risks you're adding to the business, trying to use technology in a different way and stuff we haven't done before. But the alternative risk that none of us had really contemplated was not being able to work at all when everyone gets home and, uh, and can't access their technology. So we, uh, we had to look at risk in a really different kind of way. That's exactly right. So, Hamish, you've mentioned that you see four major risks for global economies and markets at the present time. There's obviously so much going on. Can you talk us through those? Yeah, well, well, obviously, the number one risk uh, sitting there at the moment is, is the pandemic. Uh, uh, the markets, there's a lot of speculation around vaccines at the moment. We've got five or six phase three trials of vaccines uh, at the moment. Uh, the market's very hopeful that, you know, one or two or more of these are going to work and be effective and through next year we're going to vaccinate the world and this pandemic will be over. But the reality is, is we don't know and the scientists don't know. And I think this week the announcement by AstraZeneca that they there was an adverse reaction in their trial and they don't know whether that was a person just with a condition or whether it was a vaccine that, 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 that caused that. But it just shows there's still a lot of water to flow under the bridge. And even if it proves that there is an immune response, we don't know how effective that will be, how long it will last, whether you can get reinfected or not. So there's still a lot of questions around uh, around the pandemic and around this virus, a coronavirus. We've never had a vaccine for a coronavirus uh, 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 before. So the effectiveness of a vaccine is incredibly, incredibly important when it can get rolled out. Will it really get to immunity for the, the world? And if not, this may be going on for a lot longer than people think. Um, and, and, and therefore, that is a major, a major unknown and a major risk uh, uh, for, uh, for the world at the moment. And I would say that was the number one uh, 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 risk. You know, in response to this pandemic, we've seen just a, a, an incredible response by the central banks and major governments around the world. We've, we've had huge fiscal stimulus. And of course, that has been done with borrowed money. We're running very large fiscal deficits, the largest fiscal deficits since the Great Depression have been run by many economies in the world. And it's largely been financed by the central banks stepping in and printing money and buying, and buying assets on the, on the, on the markets. Uh, markets have reacted incredibly positively to uh, to that, and of course, it, it probably has headed off a, a a depression risk. You know, we we're we're in a world where the world was shutting down. You know, we were in forced home isolation. Businesses were shut all around the world, and and they needed a response, and they responded hard, and the market has responded positively to that. But you know, the real issue is what happens when this fiscal stimulus starts being withdrawn. Assuming we the, the pandemic starts to pass, you know how many bankruptcies will will there be? What will be the real level of unemployment in the world? And in the long term, what is the consequences of these deficits being run by governments and the massive build up in the balance sheets and the printed money? How can we get out of this situation in the longer term without a major calamity for for markets? I don't think. Uh, that is a risk, Gemma, today. I, I think we're in a world now of having very low interest rates and because of this very low inflation, we've got uh, 
uh, we've got excess supply in the world. We've got a shortage of aggregate demand. I think that's going to persist. So I'm not worried about inflation. I'm not worried about the debt in the in, in the short term. But in the long term, um, who knows how this story ultimately um, uh, ends. Uh, if anyone's factored, another big issue here is we've got an election coming up in the United States in uh, in in November, uh, and it, it really depends what the outcome. It's not so much the race for the White House, Biden versus Trump. It's actually the race for the Senate, um, and what happens in the Senate, and are they prepared to change the Senate rules, which we could talk about. And if you had, say, the Democrats getting something known as a trifecta, where they win the White House and they uh, they win both houses of Congress, House of Representatives and and the Senate, and then they change the Senate rules that. Currently, major legislation needs a 60% vote, 60 out of 100 senators. It's called a filibuster rule. But a majority of senators could change those rules. And if they did, they could pass any legislation they wanted. So, so you know, that is, a, that is an issue. It will depend on how, how the election falls in the United uh, uh, States. There's still a lot of water to go under that bridge. And the last thing probably on our, on our minds of the risks is the US-China tensions, which is uh, we're, we're starting to see them in, in, in Australia and in our government response. It's a big politicised issue in the, in the United States and so it's getting magnified leading into this election, but there are very legitimate underlying national security issues between China and the United States and the, uh, and, and the West, but they're a very important economic partner in terms of our supply chains for for business, but also as purchases of 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 goods as 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 well. So you know, China is also a great investment opportunity for global investors. So how do you balance out the risks of participating in the growth of China, participating in supply chains there, but also mindful of the geopolitical risks? That are rising and 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 are not about to disappear, even with uh, an election uh, post election in the United States. Maybe the temperature may go down a little bit post an election, but the fundamental issues are not going to disappear anytime soon. They're all such enormous issues that you've raised, and I think investors intuitively understand that they're all a challenge. Probably the first question I'll ask you is: Are you surprised by how quickly markets? Uh, came roaring back, for want of a better term, post-March. Has that surprised you? Uh, I would say, Gemma, nothing surprises me in, 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 in markets. It's the nature of markets. You tend to get a lot of volatility uh, in markets. I understand why markets have rallied. Did I fully anticipate that they would do it? No, no, I didn't. But that doesn't mean I'm not surprised by it. Markets are really reflecting three issues that are, are going on. The first of all is the, is the optimism, optimism around a vaccine. You know, you've got politicians talking about they're already manufacturing vaccines, plans to distribute them, uh, reportings on, on trials going on, and the markets are assuming that we're going to get to a vaccine and we're going to be vaccinating huge numbers of people in 2021. That may or may not be correct. That, that's an assumption that people are making. Um, I think it's pure speculation. I don't think there's any real scientific information yet that would tell you whether that is going to be the correct interpretation of what's going on or not at this uh, point in time. But given all the positive statements being made by so many people around uh, around vaccines, 
Um, it's not surprising the market is positive on that. Certainly, we're now in a world with lower interest rates and, 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 and the lower interest rates and what the Federal Reserve has been saying that we're likely to have even more extended period of low rates. They've, they've sort of announced a more flexible mandate. The, the, the Federal Reserves and the, and, the, and, the, and the governments have stepped in with massive support for economies and people are assuming that it doesn't matter what happens, the central banks will effectively step in and governments will just spend more money. And what I would say, and 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 the markets are reacting to that, and I understand that, and the low interest rates is real, but they should also be careful that the central banks don't have unlimited power and capacity to save all situations. And there are some smouldering fires out there that if this pandemic got worse and we don't get a vaccine, could ignite themselves and they're in emerging markets and they're in some of the debt markets in the world. And if they were to ignite, some of these are actually at the outer limits or beyond the limits of the central banks to stop them uh, turning into raging bullf- uh, uh, bushfires. So we, we just say a bit of caution here, but again, we understand the markets, seeing what the central banks have done and seeing these low interest rates and seeing all the news on the vaccines. And the other element that we haven't really seen, we've, we've sort of got this Robin Hood movement that's come into markets, this massive flow of money of younger investors um, supported by technology going in almost in a mania-like uh, way into certain stocks um, uh, that's been happening in the world. So, so when, you, when you understand all those elements going on, you can understand why markets have done what they've done. That doesn't mean the markets are right, but I do understand what's happened. The Robinhood phenomenon uh, gets a lot of press here and uh, I work for a broker in Australia. We spend a lot of time telling people we're not seeing it here in conversations with the ASX and also looking at our own data. We're just not seeing the sort of wild speculation, although I will say when our investors go to the US, they do like Tesla quite a lot. So maybe there's a little hint of it in there, little, little hint. So looking at what has been happening, how are you positioning yourselves in an environment where you know, there is a lot of downside risk. I've mentioned on this podcast before, my father's a virologist, which is not generally a particularly useful piece of information, but in the last six months has become really interesting. Um, and he has also taken the view that uh, that getting a vaccine as quickly as people hoped is, is not as likely as markets would anticipate. So how are you positioning yourselves to, I guess, protect against some of the downside risk? Yeah, well, let, let, let's start with when this struck. We, we were pretty fully invested and we designed the portfolios to have a certain risk position. Although we invest in some well-known growth businesses like Facebook and Alibaba and uh, Microsoft and, and others, we've also got a portfolio of very defensive businesses like Nestle, Nestle and Reckitt Benkiser and some US utilities and others. Um, and when this struck and when we're fully invested, because we've got both sides of our book, effectively some very high quality defensive businesses, plus some growth oriented um, uh, businesses, when this struck, the portfolio held up very well. So, you know, there is some real downside risk in, in, in markets uh, uh, here. Um, and there is upside risk in markets with these with, with this stimulus and low interest rates. We can't shut, we just can't pick what are the more likely outcomes in the next 12 months? We can actually see markets maybe grinding up another 20%. 
or we could see if this got materially worse, collapsing 50%. And that's a very wide range of, of outcomes. But we can't tell you what the probabilities on those outcomes at the moment. I think it's largely based on the science uh, and also human behaviour reacting to, to if the science doesn't turn out to be favourable um, here in the shorter term. Um, and we're not going to know until we get some more scientific data which way that comes. So I can't tell you whether a downside is a 2 or 3% risk or a 70% risk. And again, I can't tell you whether the upside is 2 or 3% or a 70 or 80% risk. And given we can't weigh up those probabilities, but we can see both pictures, but we don't know which one's more likely, um, uh, we're taking a cautious approach. But when we're taking a cautious approach, we're not... Um, we're not really trying to swing in either direction because we don't actually have conviction on either, but we can see both pictures. There's some people who are out there um, touting the bull case about the central banks and government support and you should be in markets and this is a time for risk assets and, and the vaccine's going to disappear next year. And there are other people who are saying, this is just ridiculous, everybody's well over their skis and there's going to be a major correction. We, we can see both sides of the argument, but we, 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 we don't know and genuinely don't know, and I don't think anyone does know, but they may profess they know, I don't think it's actually knowable at the moment. Um, so we're taking a balanced approach. So we, we've got some effectively insurance, we've got, you know, 15 odd percent cash uh, in the portfolio, we've got a great... Um, holdings of some very high quality defensive businesses, but we've also got growth uh, in the portfolio in businesses that are actually benefiting from this pandemic. You, there's much more digital engagement occurring in the world and businesses like Microsoft and Alibaba and Tencent are really benefiting from what's going on uh, at, the, at the moment and their earnings are actually accelerating uh, through this period. Now, defensive businesses, they're all all holding up their earnings very, very uh, uh, well. What we don't have is really the, let's call it the pandemic recovery stories at the moment, that if this really is going to pass next year, you know, there are businesses like travel-related businesses, which are, there's some very high-quality businesses, but we're not, we don't really know how to shape what that recovery in that sector looks like because we don't still know how long this pandemic is going to last for. Um, uh, until we get more information on a, on, a, on a vaccine. So, you know, we're staying away from the cyclical recoveries, but we've got uh, growth businesses are actually benefited uh, from what's going on. We've got defensive businesses and we've got a, some powder dry and some, uh, some cash. So we're actually very comfortable with the hand that we're holding at the moment. But as I said earlier, Gemma, you know, our portfolio held up when we were fully invested and this struck and we hadn't done anything in advance. And we, we design a portfolio to have resilience in the event that a, that a black swan happens. Something happens that you can't see. And we're all talking about the pandemic. Who knows in six months something else could happen in the world that, that none of us are even focused on at the moment. I think it's quite powerful for people to hear that you don't have a view one way or the other which one's more likely I think for so many people it's quite anxiety inducing trying to predict the future and perhaps saying I'll just set myself up for whatever occurs is quite helpful you've mentioned a defensive portfolio I think one of the things that's been most telling over the last six months is how few defensive stocks and I say that in inverted commas turned out to be defensive in this environment and vice versa things that we thought of as growth stocks perhaps less so in international markets we thought of them as growth companies 
and yet they became quite defensive in this environment. They were the things that we kept using when we couldn't use anything else. Have you found that in your portfolios? Yeah, we, we, we have found some of that out portfolio. Certainly you would expect some of the higher growth businesses to have been hit during this pandemic and they weren't. Uh, you know, businesses like Facebook and Alibaba and Tencent and Microsoft have done wonderfully well in this environment because people have been forced. Uh, I think we're talking about this earlier on. We, we've suddenly been trialling technology. Uh, if you look at a business like Netflix, they had the record sign up over the last period. The last two quarters have been the best quarters Microsoft has had in many, many years. Um, during the depths of this pandemic, because of the, the unique circumstance, you're right, there were some defensive businesses. We own, a, we, own, we own holdings in a business like McDonald's. McDonald's in the last financial crisis was one of the only two components of the Dow Jones Industrial Average that went up. It was actually McDonald's and Walmart. And this time McDonald's went down. And you would say, well, normally it's very resilient, but we're in a world where people weren't allowed to go out and the restaurants were shut. So it's pretty hard to be defensive if you can't open your you can't open your restaurants. But when when they've opened their drive-throughs up and things, and McDonald's has come back quite strongly and its share price has recovered almost completely. But our businesses, like our utilities, have maintained all their earnings guidance uh, 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 through this. So quite a lot of our defensive businesses did exactly. There were the restaurants which were unique to this pandemic, and 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 on the other side, there were some growth businesses that that would normally have higher volatility during some of this, but, but the uniqueness of this circumstance uh, has benefited their businesses. So th this, is a, this is a really, really unique situation. Normally, normally we're dealing with a financial crisis, which is an economic event, and our job is to assess what the depth of the recession is going to be, is what the governments are doing and the central banks are doing, and they're relatively easy. And normally we would buy at the bottom of those cycles like we did in 2009. Uh, but here we have the collision of a health crisis and an economic crisis. And the economic crisis is, is going to be dictated by what the health crisis outcome is. And the health crisis is a scientific problem. Uh, and that's what makes it's not an economic problem. So most people in markets are not experts in, in, in science. Um, there's a lot of people who say they're experts in this and talking the markets, but the closer you get to the scientists, the more you, as you said with your father, the more you understand is just how fluid this situation really is. Yes, as someone who's related to a scientist, <laughs> you learn really quickly how little you know about science uh, and how many other people are speaking about it with great confidence, but who don't seem to be quite as close to it as they might think either. Yeah, I quickly worked out how little I knew. I had a whole series of questions and not many answers. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite depressing, isn't it? <laughs> you come in with a couple of hypotheses and walk out with 20 more. But uh, the US election is one where there is at least... Uh, you know, a couple of finite outcomes, it seems quite clear that it will go one way or the other. Uh, do you guys have a view on how that's likely to play out and what potential impact it will have, or are you just positioning yourselves for both outcomes? Well, let, let, let's talk about the outcome that, that, that would matter to, uh, to markets. A lot of people are focused on Biden versus Trump in the White House. And, and frankly, that's somewhat of a side issue, and I know it may not sound like that. But it really comes down to the Senate in the, in the United States in terms of what really matters. Um, in order to get control of the government, you need to win the White House because the president has a veto. You need to win both houses of Congress, the lower house, which is currently controlled, which is the House of Representatives controlled by the Democrats, 
and the Senate, which is has 100 senators with one third going up for election, um, uh, which is currently controlled by the Republicans. So first of all, to, to, to have something that's going to really change the world we're in, you would have to get, if, it, if, it, if it's Trump winning or Trump or the Republicans re remaining control of the Senate, not a lot's going to change. Um, but if it's a Democrats getting what is known as a trifecta, that they pick up the Senate, um, the House of Representatives and the White House, and they look at this stage in front in terms of the White House and the House of Representatives, and it looks very line ball in the Senate at the moment. So you can't pass any legislation if you don't hold all three parts of, 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 of government, but it's not even as straightforward as that in the United States. In the Senate, outside passing a budget, any legislation requires a supermajority vote, 60% of senators, so 60 of 100 senators. And if they don't do something that's called a filibuster, which means the minority, the minority senators can block the legislation and it can't be passed. So, so, so in order for there to be an impact, real impact on markets, I would say the Democrats have to take all three and they then have to make it, they're never going to get to 60 senators. There's not even that many senators up for election to enable that to happen. Um, and that wouldn't happen in any event. They would have to change the rules of the Senate and they would have to remove this procedural rule about the supermajority for legislation and make it a 51% vote, a majority vote only. And people have always been very nervous to change that rule because it could put in a sitting party with immense power to pass legislation. Um, I know that's what we get, but we just don't often get that people have the Senate and the, uh, and the House in our, in, in our country. And normally there's minority parties. But if you change those rules, then you could pass any legislation. And, and President Obama, a number of weeks ago, made a speech um, really putting on the table to the Democrats that if we get control and get the trifecta, we should use this moment in our history to get rid of this filibuster rule. And he's put a carrot out to them to say is, if we change this rule, don't be fearful it's going to come back and bite us. What we should do is we should make uh, uh, bring make two more states in the United States. So, so increase the union from 50 to 52 states and introduce the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico to become states. And the important thing about that is every state appoints two senators. So suddenly you get these two very territories having as much Senate power as California or Florida or Texas. Um, and I can tell you the District of Columbia, which is the district that encircles Washington, D.C., Washington District of Columbia, is a left-leaning area just like Canberra would be in, in Australia. And he's saying, we guarantee we're going to pick up more senators. So we're probably going to control the Senate in the future. So let's change the rules. And if, if they do that, then you could start seeing the pressure on the Democrats to start having a sweeping legislative agenda. Um, so I would say when you're watching election night and you're worried about markets the next day, just watch the Senate, what happens in the Senate. If the Democrats don't put up, pick up the Senate, I suspect markets will yawn. If they get the trifecta and pick up the Senate and there is, and then start Googling the filibuster and what the senators are saying about that, that is the point where it would get interesting uh, in terms of how the markets may react to, to, to the election. So what have we done? We've reduced some of our healthcare exposure. The, the big parts on the agenda, obviously, are ex further 
uh, expanding what is known as Obamacare, the Affordable Health Care uh, Act, to make it more look like our system. Uh, that 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 wouldn't be positive for healthcare companies in the in the United States. Uh, increasing corporate taxation, they can do that with a simple majority. They that could be a budgetary move. But I think climate change is something which they're really going to be focused on here. Um, and a number on the Democratic side thinks that this is their their last time in history to make a move. And therefore, if they get the opportunity and they control the Senate to actually try and exercise that. Um, exercise that, um, uh, that, 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 that power. So, you know, that's how we're assessing it. We've taken a few issues uh, at this stage. You know, our portfolio is fairly well positioned for this, but we are factoring in higher taxation rates if the, if the Democrats are in power. Obviously, the corporate tax rate was reduced from 35 to 21% in America under Trump, and Biden has said he'd increase it from 20 to 28%. Uh, that's such a useful explanation for so many people, I think. And then your final comment is so telling. So many investors uh, didn't pay super close attention to the uh, to the reduction in tax rates under Trump, but it was dramatic and obviously it was a spectacular tailwind for a lot of companies. So uh, increasing them back up again will be very interesting indeed. Uh, people never like having their taxes increased. They might find that quite challenging. Uh, you made the comment very early on that you didn't think that the outcome of the election was likely to have a big impact on US-China tensions, but it is something you're concerned about. What are your thoughts about how that's going to impact sort of major companies going forward? Yeah, well, China China's a very important uh, investment call to get right in the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, you know, China is the second largest economy in the world. And I would say, notwithstanding the tensions, the United States and the West are not going to be able to stop the rise of China and the economic rise of China in particular. Uh, and so how do you sensibly participate in that with the, with the tensions that, 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 are, that are going on? I think you need a balanced um, uh, approach. And I don't think a change in the White House is going to make a fundamental difference. You know, there is bipartisan support on the national security side of the tensions with uh, uh, with, with, with China. I think it's quite well documented of the sort of cyber espionage and the other things that China has perpetrated on the United States and other countries around the, uh, around the world, and they've woken up to, to, to what's uh, to what's occurring. So I don't think Biden's going to get in something saying this is all a non-issue and it's just been, mind the pun, trumped up um, uh, here. But I think what you'll have is probably a more considered and a less tweeting environment around it and, and a more predictable environment about what the real issues are. You know, Trump is clearly trying to deflect blame um, uh, around the virus to, to, to China. Uh, he's wanting to show he's super tough on China as well, and therefore some of the some of the rhetoric that's coming out of the White House and some of the actions is really domestically politically driven rather than nationally a national security issue. And I think we will have probably less of that post the election, and probably back to to the more national security side of it. But but Biden, I suspect, will be tougher than Obama, but will probably be handed with a little bit more diplomacy than than Trump has attack the, 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 this issue, but we can't just ignore that this issue isn't going to be ongoing. So we, we, we're taking 
a quite a diversified approach to our investments in China. We've got some US businesses who have very, very good businesses in China, a business like Starbucks and a business like uh, Yum Brands and Estee Lauder have fabulous businesses uh, in, in, in China. We've got some non-US multinationals, uh, a business like LVMH, the luxury goods company based out of Paris. But also we've got some Chinese technology platform companies, uh, Tencent and Alibaba in our portfolio as well. So we, we, we've got a multitude of approaches to this to try and diversify our risk uh, from this, but we do want to participate in the economic. It's very hard to find growth in the world over the next 10 years, given what's going, going on. Um, and, and this is one of the areas. There are other areas in computing and cloud computing and payments and other areas that, that, that we, we like a lot. But, uh, but this is an area that you want to participate in. And, but to do it to, to mitigate your risk, you don't want all your eggs in one basket. So one final question for you, and, and you've somewhat talked to uh, to where you're looking for opportunities at the moment, but Janet Yellen is one of your advisors, which is quite a coup, frankly. Uh, so what, I guess, what advice is she giving you and what are you thinking about this issue of monetary policy and fiscal policy at the moment with just such accommodative measures all over the world, how we come out of that and how we find growth again without it being effectively underwritten by governments around the world? Yeah, we're, we're, we are very fortunate that, you know, Janet, Janet, who's a wonderful individual, by, by the way, and a very good thinker, is, is an advisor consultant to Magellan. And we've also got Kevin Walsh. And, and, and Kevin was, was formerly on the Federal Reserve with Bernanke and was a bridge to Wall Street during the last financial crisis and actually has very strong views and some quite different views sometimes to Janet's views. He was approached by Trump to, to be the current Fed chair. He was the other one with Jerome Powell who was interviewed by Trump. And Trump has often said in public forums he wish he picked Kevin. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we, we get different views on monetary policy. They, they would both share the view that, that, um, that we're going to be through an extended period of low interest rates uh, uh, here. They're not worried about inflation in the, in the, in the, short, in the short term. But there would be a divergence of views around what the consequences of what the Fed is doing at the, uh, at, at the moment, this massive expansion of the balance sheet. And probably whoever's going to get in power, there's going to be an ongoing pressure to further stimulate the economy uh, and run larger fiscal deficits, which is going to lead to even a larger uh, 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 balance sheet at the Federal Reserve and more printed money. And if we get any economic downturn, the Fed may go further with their quantitative easing. So they're, they're, they're kind of going all in here. Uh, uh, one of them, I, I don't want to pick them out individually or what they individually say, because I think it'd be very unfair and they're public people. I don't want to put words in publicly into their mouths. Um, but, but on one side of the fence, it is that that you know what the Federal Reserve is doing is creating financial instruments. Um, uh, it's really not printing money. On the other side of this, uh, uh, reserves in the banking system which pay interest, and really their financial debts. So they're really not printing money. They're swapping a financial asset for another financial asset, and it's not creating velocity of money in the economy, and it won't create inflation. Um, and the other side of this is this is a massive monetary experiment that's going to be very, very hard to get out of. And most likely way out of this is probably a massive disruption uh, to the world markets. And, and if we get inflation in the world, 
it, it, it could lead to a lot of pain. So, but I don't, this isn't the next three to five years issues. And frankly, which way that sits, you know, Japan's been in this territory of massive fiscal deficits and massive monetary printing for 20 years. And we haven't seen any signs of life that, that we're about to get inflation or consequences uh, from what they've, uh, what they've been doing. But just because it hasn't happened somewhere else and there are unique circumstances around Japan with a very insular economy, uh, ageing population, demand for sort of bond-like assets and not, not, not equity. So it's a, it's, a, it's a unique sort of economy that they've got there and extrapolate that there are no risks for other economies doing the same thing, I think would be an unwise thing uh, to do. But we're not, we're not concerned about this in the short term, but we're giving a lot of thought about how you have an equity portfolio that has some inflation protection in it for the longer term, given what's happening at the moment. Hamish, you've been so generous with your time and you've raised so many interesting thoughts for investors, some ideas for them to think about. You've also recently launched a podcast, which I can guarantee you that listeners of this recording will be very enthusiastic to listen to. You've got a wealth of great content. Where do people go to make sure they keep up to date with everything you're talking about? Yeah, well, the, the easiest thing to go is to go to the Magellan website. Um, and, you know, we, we post them and you can actually sign up on the website. You can sign up for our insights and, um, and, and then you can be alerted when, when we release any of them. We've got an app and, of course, we've, we've now got a pop podcast as well, but we do quite a lot of videos as well. And, you know, we've had Janet Yellen, the first podcast was with Michael Morell, who was a former deputy director of the CIA, who's a terrific uh, if, if you're ever interested, you're interested in geopolitics and everything, what's going on in the world. Michael is fascinating, and that was our first uh, podcast we did. We've uh, we've got some other good ones coming up as well, hopefully. Hamish Douglas from Magellan, thank you so much for joining us today. An absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Also, we do love hearing from you. We've received some awesome feedback and we've had plenty of requests for guests, including Hamish today. So please just email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au if you have any suggestions or requests. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.